Welcome to the Man of God Network, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. This is a voice of the narrated Puritan. The recordings of the narrated Puritan can be found at www.sermonaudio.com. Search for the broadcaster, the narrated Puritan. Today's historic lesson and reading is part one of two of the persecution of our Baptist forefathers in colonial Massachusetts. The following is taken from the history of the First Baptist Church of Boston, Massachusetts, 1665 to 1899 by Nathan Wood, its minister. This is published by the American Baptist Publication Society in 1899. The preparations and the forerunners to this church the founders of the colony of Massachusetts Bay purposed to plant on the shores of the new world a theocracy, which should be subject to such modifications only as their loyalty to the British sovereign compelled them. Evidently, they desired the smallest possible amount of constraint put upon them by royal authority. The Hebrew theocracy seems to have been preeminently in their minds the model for their own newly organized society. The exactions of the Mosaic statutes seemed to them to furnish a clear guarantee of security and strength in the state than did the freedom of the Gospels. The church and the state were to be a happy unity in which each interpenetrated the other, and the earthly boundaries of which should be countermenous. The first Puritan settlers had been gathered on a general principle of similarity of political and theological views. And in the earliest days of the colony, it was not difficult, through the willing conformity of its members, to preserve an outward unity. There were few and possibly no dissensions from their scheme of a united church and state. The mother country, through many years, had been in such a state of ferment that in spite of persecution, or perhaps because of persecution, men of every shade of theological opinion abounded within her borders. When therefore adventurous colonists from old England began to multiply in New England, the good ships which brought them brought also their dissentient theologies. Many who had experienced the tyranny of the established church in the old home grew restive under the restrictions of an established church, though of the Puritan order, in a new home. They seemed to have expatriated themselves in vain, for they had only exchanged the tyranny of one establishment for that of another. The Puritans were themselves dissenters. It would have been strange indeed if there had not also been dissenters from the Puritans. Moreover, the novel conditions of the New World, with the freedom of its wide wilderness and the escape from many of the restraints of an old and ordered society, were sure to furnish the fertile seed plots of independent thought and action. It was a strangely futile dream in which our Puritan forefathers walked when they fancied that they could shut out the spirit of dissent from the colony of Massachusetts Bay, when that spirit had always been one of the most imperious and marked inheritances of men of English blood. Nowhere were the conditions more favorable for its development. Boston was settled and named sometime in the summer of 1630. In about six months thereafter, February 1631, the good ship Lion, heavily laden with provisions, arrived off Nantasket. It has been a time of want, almost a famine, and the day appointed for humiliation and prayer was turned into rejoicing and thanksgiving by this timely relief. But on board the ship was a passenger who was to prove almost as troublesome to the new colony as famine. Mr. Roger Williams, 
whom Governor Winthrop at the time called a godly minister, was with his newly married wife among the passengers. He was a man who could not be bent to the will of the ecclesiastical oligarchy, which had already assumed authority in manners both spiritual and political. Dissent had come early to the New World and come to stay. He was at first welcomed eagerly and was unanimously chosen teacher at Boston of the church. He refused the invitation, declaring that the civil magistrates had no right to punish any breach of the first four tables or commandments of the Decalogue. This is the entering wedge between church and state. He was soon called to Salem and accepted the office of teacher in that church, in spite of earnest protests from the Boston magistrates against it, on the ground of his divisive teaching. The little frame church in which he preached may still be seen in Salem. It has been carefully preserved and is one of the many American shrines to which the pilgrims who love liberty resort. Its simplicity and diminutiveness are pathetic illustrations of the day of small things. His views soon became the source of boundless trouble to the colonial court and church, and they did not cease threat, expostulation, and agitation until they had driven him from his place. In August of 1631, he went to Plymouth, where he became assistant to the pastor for about two years. There he found a generous tolerance. But the Salem church, which seemed to be sincerely attached to him, entreated him to return to them, which he did, and they retained him until 1635, when he was again and finally banished from the colony, because of his erroneous and very dangerous opinions, end quote. He fled in the dead of winter to Plymouth and thence to Narragansett Bay, where he founded a town which he called Providence. In this new settlement, there was to be complete religious toleration, both in teaching and in worship. He became a Baptist and with 11 others founded the First Baptist Church in Providence in March of 1639. His, quote, Anabaptist views were already well known in Salem and the news of his actual immersion in Providence, together with his establishment of a new church, made no small stir both in Salem and in Boston, where he had many sympathizers and adherents. The conditions were now ripe for the development of a Baptist schism. To meet this incipient dissent and to deter any others from following in his steps, the general court had already on March 3rd of 1636 ordered that all persons are to take notice that this court does not nor will hereafter approve of any such companies of men as shall henceforth join in any pretended way of church fellowship without they shall first acquaint the magistrates and the elders of the greater part of the churches in this jurisdiction with their intentions and have their approbation therein. And further, it is ordered that no person being a member of any such church, which shall hereafter be gathered without the approbation of the magistrates, and a greater part of said churches shall be admitted to the freedom of this commonwealth. Enforcement of this law was almost immediately required. It was only three months after its promulgation that the constable of Salem was ordered to break up unauthorized assemblies of dissenters in a town where Roger Williams had so lately been the minister, and where the seeds of dissent which he had sown broadcast were already producing harvests. In 1638, Mr. Hanser Knowles came from London to Boston, but was refused permission to remain in the colony because of his, quote, views of Anabaptism. 
He was probably not at that time an avowed Baptist, although he held Baptist views. He fled to Piscataqua, since called Dover, in New Hampshire, and there gathered a dissenting congregation of which he ministered until 1641 when he returned to England. He became an eminent Baptist pastor in London where he spent the remainder of his useful life. It is not certainly known whether he became an acknowledged Baptist in Piscataqua or whether it was after his return to London. It is known, however, that he preached the doctrines of Baptists in New Hampshire and created there a new center of dissent and alarm to the authorities. In 1637, Mr. John Clark, a man of education and of property, arrived in Boston. He was a physician and at once began the practice of his profession. He soon became disgusted with the intolerant spirit manifested in the colony, and being an intense lover of liberty, decided to go elsewhere and found a colony on principles of broad toleration. He went first to New Hampshire with some friends of like spirit with himself, but finding the climate too rigorous for his health, finally went to Providence. Under the encouragement of Mr. Roger Williams, he decided to settle in Rhode Island, and in May of 1639 founded Newport. Sometime between 1639 and 1644, he organized a Baptist church in Newport, over which he presided as its distinguished minister until his death in 1676. This year, 1639, William Wickenden, a Baptist preacher, moves from Salem to Providence. He had been a disseminator of Baptist doctrine in the region around Salem and had undoubtedly received his initial impulse toward Baptists from Mr. Roger Williams. In 1642, the Lady Moody, a wise and amiable religious woman, being taken with the air of denying baptism to infants, was dealt with by many of the elders and others and admonished by the church at Salem, whereof she was, by persisting still and to avoid further trouble, she removed to the Dutch against the advice of her friends. Many others, infested with anabaptism and so on, removed there also. She was after excommunicated. That is a footnote, John Winthrop's journal. All those who removed to New York had doubtless been influenced toward their Baptist views by the teaching and example of Mr. Williams. In 1644, Thomas Painter of Hennem became a Baptist, and having a child born would not allow his wife to carry it to be baptized. He was complained of for this to the court and enjoined by them to suffer his child to be baptized. He refused to obey the order and told the court that it was an anti-Christian ordinance, whereupon they tied him up and whipped him, which he bore without flinching, and declared he had divine help to support him, and so on. He was probably the first one of those who, on account of Baptist beliefs, suffered a public whipping in Massachusetts by order of the authorities. He removed afterward to Newport and united with the Baptist church there. His name is 15th on their list. In February of 1644, William Witter of Swamscott, then a part of Lynn, a neighbor of the Lady Moody, was arraigned before the Salem court Oh, for entertaining that the baptism of infants was sinful, in quote. He was found guilty and sentenced to make public acknowledgment of his fault. This he would not do, and hence we find him before the court in Salem again in 1645, quote, presented by the grand jury for saying that they who stayed whilst the child is baptized do worship the devil. 
Later, he was cited to appear before the general court in Boston to be preceded with according to the merit of his offense. All these proceedings had no deterrent effect on this obstinate Baptist, nor to the fact that at the same court John Wood was arraigned for professing Anabaptist sentiments and withholding his children from baptism, and John Spur was bound over for similar reasons to pay a fine of 20 pounds. The heresy of Anabaptism, quote, had infinitely become widespread around Salem. In 1648, Edward Starbuck gave much trouble to the authorities in Dover, New Hampshire, because of his profession of Anabaptistry. Those who had been punished for heresy had suffered under no specific statute, but were condemned without law and without trial. When Governor John Winslow was called to an account for it by the home government, he acknowledged that the whipping had been done unlawfully, but justified himself on the ground that the sufferers had been evildoers against the peace of the commonwealth. The general court, in order that it might have cover of law for its severely repressive measures, enacted the following statute, November 13, 1644, quote, For as much as experience has plentifully and often proved that since the first rising of the Anabaptists, about 100 years since, they have been the incendiaries of the commonwealths and the infectors of persons and main matters of religion, and the troublers of churches in all places where they have been, and that they who have held the baptizing of infants unlawful have usually held other errors or heresies together therewith, though they have, as other heretics used to do, concealed the same till they spied out a fit advantage and opportunity to vent them by way of question or scruple, and whereas divers of this kind have since our coming into New England appeared amongst ourselves, some whereof, as others before them, denied the ordinance of magistracy and the lawfulness of making war, and others the lawfulness of magistrates and their inspection into any breach of the first table of the law, which opinions, if they should be connived at by us, are like to be increased amongst us, and so must necessarily bring guilt upon us, infection and trouble to the churches, and hazard to the whole commonwealth. It is ordered and agreed that if any person or persons within the jurisdiction shall either openly condemn or oppose the baptizing of infants, or go about secretly to seduce others from the approbation or use thereof, shall purposely depart the congregation and administration of the ordinances, or shall deny the ordinance of magistracy or their lawful right and authority to make war, or to punish the outward breaches of the first table, it shall appear to the court willfully and obstinately to continue therein after due time and means of conviction. Every such person or person shall be sentenced to banishment, end quote, from the Massachusetts records. This statute was certainly broad enough to allow punishment of any person whatsoever whom the court might dislike and desire to drive out of the colony. The assumption that Baptists were the incendiaries of commonwealths was wholly gratuitous. It is a fine illustration of hurling opprobrious epithets after the facts and proof are wholly wanting. The gist of the statute was its penalty for disbelief in infant baptism, which was always the real cornerstone on which was built the union of church and state. If this were destroyed, the whole structure of a theocratic commonwealth would fall into hopeless ruin, and the churches of the established order would be left with but little growth and a diminishing power. 
Here was the crucial question. In a battle was destined to rage around it through many long years before complete religious liberty was won and church and state were severed. There were some who deplored the severity of the laws against dissent, and especially the cruelty of their application. There was occasionally agitation, although slight, for their repeal. In 1645, upon a petition of divers persons for consideration of the law against Anabaptists, the court voted that the law mentioned should not be altered at all nor explained. From the Colonial Records, Volume 2, page 149. The General Court received the following petition, which was far more to its liking, signed by 78 citizens of Roxbury in Dorchester. Quote, it is therefore our humble petition to this honorable court that such laws or orders as are in force amongst us against Anabaptists or other erroneous persons whereby to restrain the spreadings and divulgings of their errors amongst ye people here may not be abrogated and taken away nor any ways weakened, but may still continue in their force as now they are, that so there may not be a door open for such dangerous heirs to infest and spread in this country, as some do desire. From the Massachusetts Archives, Volume 10, page 211. The general court needed no urging, for its spirit was already relentless towards dissenters. The ministers also were watchful to see that the bonds of intolerance were not in any way loosened, and that their own exclusive monopoly of religious teaching was carefully maintained. This protective duty upon religion made them guard all the boundaries of the colony, lest some Baptists or Quakers should be smuggled into their society, and ecclesiastical establishment be secretly undermined. The general court felt that Plymouth Colony was far too lenient in dealing with Baptists and sought to stir it up to hostilities against them. As a result of this neighborly citation, John Hazel, Edward Smith and wife, Obadiah Holmes, Joseph Torrey and wife, and the wife of James Mann, William Duell and wife, Baptists of Rehoboth, are presented for continuing to meet from house to house on the Sabbath. The court charged them to desist from their separation and neither to ordain officers, nor to baptize, nor to break bread together, nor to meet on the first days of the week. In quote, Felt, Ecclesiastical History of New England, Volume 2, page 27. This is in 1649. But they would not promise and insisted on following the dictates of their own conscience and their understanding of the Word of God. The General Court wrote again to Plymouth on October 18, 1649, quote, We are credibly informed that your patient bearing with such men has produced another effect, namely the multiplying and increasing of the same errors. Particularly, we understand that within these few weeks there has been at Seekonk 13 or 14 persons rebaptized a swift progress in one town. The infection of such diseases being so near us are likely to spread into our jurisdiction, in quote, Massachusetts Colonial Records, Volume 3, page 173. Seekonk, now Swansea and Reveth, had become under the general tolerance of Plymouth Colony, a place where liberty and doctrinal belief was enjoyed, and was admirably fitted to become the home of the Baptist Church, which was first permanently established there in 1663. Reverend John Miles was the founder and first pastor of this church. 
He and some of his flock, weary of the persecution in Wells, which ensued under the Act of Uniformity, passed when Charles II came to the throne, sought in the New World freedom of opinion and worship. This church in Swansea was in some sense a reorganization of the original church in Swansea Wells, but added to itself members who were already residents of the region and who had held Baptist doctrines. The church grew rapidly, so at the end of the first 10 years it had more than 200 members. These were the best and most influential years of its whole history and furnished a source of lively dissent from the churches of the standing order. It was found that the church was located within the jurisdiction of the colony of Massachusetts Bay and persecution soon followed. The members were fined and were ordered to remove to some other place. They heeded the order and settled within the boundaries of Rhode Island. Afterward, they were granted a tract of land by Plymouth Colony and settled in their present location, which they named Swansea. The church still exists and has made an honorable history. On July 19, 1651, John Clark, Obadiah Holmes, and John Crandall, quote, being the representatives of the Baptist Church in Newport upon the request of William Witter of Lynn, arrived there, he being a brother in the church who, by reason of his advanced age, could not undertake so great a journey as to visit the church, Newport Church Papers. No man in colonial Rhode Island history was more influential except Roger Williams or of a nobler and purer fame than Dr. John Clark. He was a trusted advisor, a wise legislator, a learned man, a devout Christian, and a distinguished minister. Obadiah Holmes was granted land in Salem in 1639 and was admitted to the church there, March 24, 1640. Later in the same year, he was presented by the grand jury for reproachfully speaking against the ordinance of God, baptism. In 1646, he removed to Rehoboth. Hence, in going to Salem and Lynn, he was returning to a former home and to meet old neighbors and acquaintances. Of John Crandall, little is known. William Witter of Lynn had been under discipline and was finally cut off from the Salem church June 24, 1651, quote, for absenting himself from public ordinances nine months or more and for being rebaptized. Ecclesiastical History of New England, Volume 2, pages 25 to 46. He had previously become a member of the Baptist Church in Newport. This aged and blind brother had great joy when his pastor John Clark and the other brethren from Newport arrived at his home. On the following day, the Lord's Day, they proceeded to hold a simple service of preaching and of the observance of the Lord's Supper. Four or five strangers that came in unexpected were present also in his house, which for the time had become a sanctuary of worship. Mr. Witter had probably written to the church at Newport that there were persons in his vicinity who wished to be baptized. The church sent, not their pastor alone, but Obadiah Holmes also, a preacher, and John Crandall, a private member, that their number might give a church authority to all their acts. They baptized the candidates, one of whom may have been under admonition in a state church for his Baptist opinions. The supper was then celebrated, and the newly baptized converts partook with Witter. This view, which is in perfect harmony with all the facts in the case, makes the administration of the supper an orderly service, such as the strictest Baptist would approve. 
The Newport Church kept the ordinance at one of its outposts. While Mr. Clark was expounding the scriptures in the house to the little company there gathered, two constables came in with a warrant and arrested him and his Newport associates. They were watched over that night in the ordinary of thieves and robbers by the officers, and on the second day after they were lodged in the common jail in Boston, then in Prison Lane, now Court Street. July 31st, they were brought to public trial in Boston. Governor Endicott charged him with being Anabaptist, to which Clark made reply that he was neither an Anabaptist, nor a Pado-Baptist, nor a Catabaptist. At this reply, the governor stepped up and told us we had denied infant baptism, and being somewhat transported, told me I had deserved death, and said he would not have such trash brought into his jurisdiction. Moreover, he said, you go up and down and secretly insinuate into those that are weak, but you cannot maintain it before our ministers. You may try and dispute with them, end quote. To this, Clark was about to make reply that he would be pleased to reason upon these manners out of the scriptures when the jailer was ordered to take him forthwith to prison. Holmes says, what they laid to my charge you may here read in my sentence. Upon the pronouncing of which, as I went from the bar, I expressed myself in these words. I bless God, I am counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. Whereupon John Wilson, their pastor as they call him, struck me before the judgment seat and cursed me, saying, The curse of God or Jesus go with thee. Clark says, In the forenoon we were examined. In the afternoon, without producing either accuser, witness, or jury, law of God or man, we were sentenced. He was fined 20 pounds or to be well whipped. Crandall was fined 5 pounds or to be well whipped. Obadiah Holm was fined 30 pounds or to be well whipped. From his prison cell, Clark wrote this letter, the original of which may be seen in the Massachusetts Archives, volume 10, page 212. To the honored court assembled at Boston, whereas it pleased this honored court yesterday to condemn the faith and order which I hold in practice, and after you had passed your sentence upon me, for it were pleased to express I could not maintain the same against your ministers, and thereupon publicly proffered me a dispute with them, be pleased by these few lines to understand I readily accept it. And so on. The governor, who at first had shown an inclination to allow the points of disagreement to be publicly discussed with the ministers of the colony, and indeed had openly in court offered Clark that privilege afterward at the instigation of the ministers themselves, ignored his letter of acceptance of this proposal. From the prison, Clark sent these four propositions, which he ardently hoped to be permitted to be discussed. First, the absolute lordship of Jesus Christ in all manners of doctrine. Secondly, that baptism or dipping in water is one of the commandments of this Lord Jesus Christ, and that a visible believer or disciple of Christ Jesus, that is one that manifests repentance towards God and faith in Jesus Christ, is the only person that is to be baptized or dipped with that visible baptism or dipping of Jesus Christ in water. Thirdly, that every believer may in point of liberty exhort or preach or prophesy. Fourthly, that no believer has right to persecute his brother for a manner of conscience, end quote. 
These were certainly lucid and explicit statements and appeared reasonable manner of debate between a man in power and a man in prison. They were then and are now good Baptist doctrines, but the debate was not allowed. No notice was taken of his appeal nor of his statements. When it became noised abroad that there was to be a public debate, great interest and expectation were aroused. It was rumored that the distinguished John Cotton would be the disputant for the court. Nothing came of it at all. Probably the court discreetly concluded that such a public discussion would advertise a Baptist heresy far and wide, and that still further mischief would ensue. Clark and Crandall were not long after released upon the payment of their sins by some tender-hearted friends without their consent and contrary to their judgment. But Holmes could not be persuaded to accept such deliverance. He would neither pay the fine nor allow it to be paid and was kept in prison until September when he was brought forth and publicly whipped. With a three-quarted whip given me therewith thirty strokes, as a man began to lay the strokes upon my back, I said to the people, Though my flesh should fail and my spirit should fail, yet my God would not fail. When he was released from the whipping post, he said to the magistrates, You have struck me as with roses. Although the Lord has made it easy to me, yet I pray God it may be not laid to your charge. The whipping was so severe that Governor Jenks says, quote, Mr. Holmes was whipped 30 stripes and in such an unmerciful manner that in many days, if not some weeks, he could take no rest. But as he lay on his knees and elbows, not being able to suffer any part of his body to touch the bed whereon he lay. Morgan Edwards says, This is the first instance of tormenting for conscience sake in New England, and that a Baptist was a proto-martyr here, as a Baptist was a first martyr that was burned in old England. Well, we'll stop right there. Thank you for tuning in to this podcast. If you want to hear more of this story, you can go to the Narrated Puritan at Sermon Audio and listen to a Sunday school that I did on the persecution of the Baptists in the 1600s. Thank you for tuning in to the Man of God podcast. Mm-hmm.